Let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 3 this morning. Now, for those of you who have read through the Bible in a year, how many of you have done that? Or at least tried to do that? Started it? I mean, uh, I probably started it four times before I did it. You know, there are certain impediments beyond our own hearts about reading through the Bible in a year. Uh, Leviticus might, might be one. Um, portions of Chronicles that go on and so-and-so begot so-and-so and so-and-so begot this one and this one and this one and it just goes on and you, maybe you think to yourself, why do I need to know this? Okay? I mean, this is God's holy word and he has seen fit to clutter up eight chapters of genealogies. What in the world is that for? Or why do I need to know, you know, how to cut up the offering so I can burn it when I'm not going to cut it up or burn it? Unless my grill gets out of control, then I might burn some meat. There are plenty of passages in Scripture where where we read, and, and we usually don't come across them unless you're reading through the Bible in the year. There are plenty of passages that we just scratch our heads and go, why in the world is this included in Scripture? I mean, what purpose can it serve in my life today? Because we understand that Scripture, yes, was written two, 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago. But it is for today applicable in my life today because it is God's holy word and it will be applicable 1,000 years from now if the Lord does not return. So, why is it here? Now, we're going to start on a series of, of, I don't know how many weeks, of passages that when we come to, we we look at it and go, what was God thinking when he included this? And we're going to start off with a a real winner of a passage in Judges chapter 3. And this is a story, and now, now understand Judges, we know, we know generally the book. When we think of Judges, we think of uh, Samson, and we think of Gideon and, and their great faith, or Gideon's great faith, and Samson, he, he was hit or miss on, on his faith. But, but there are a string of Judges, and they serve a purpose. And each one comes at a particular time according to God's purposes, um, and, and each one has something to teach us about the character of God, and about how we are to live because of that. Now, we're, only, we're not going to look at all the judges. We're going to look at one today in, in particular. So if you're able, would you stand with me? And I'm going to read from Judges chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 12 through the end of the chapter, 12 through 30. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us today in particular to help us understand your word. It is here. It is for us. What is it that we are, we are supposed to know from this passage? Open our eyes, open our hearts, Lord, so that we are vessels for you to pour into. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and the sons of Amalek, 
And he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. And the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And the sons of Israel sent tribute to him, by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made himself a sword, which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, that's there for a reason, and you'll see it as we get on. But, but you know, it's one of the funny things. Uh, we just see they, they throw this stuff in, and we think, oh, that's cool, and then we find out why. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and refuse came out. Then Ehud came out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants came and looked, and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, He is only relieving himself in the cool room. And they waited until they became anxious. But behold, he he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, though Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords and the Jordan opposite Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross. And they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. Okay? This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now that last portion is particular because understand that under Eglon, Israel had no army. They had no arms. But yet they go out at the death of the king and at the leadership of Ehud to destroy 10,000 valiant men of the Moabites because God had chosen Ehud for this purpose. Now these are the passages, this is the first of the passages that are going to be some, some how we, we, for church purposes, we might rate some of the passages we're going to look at as R. Okay. Now, in today's society, they're nothing special. But usually in church, we're looking at grace, and we're looking at mercy, and we're looking at what God calls us to do. Some of these passages that 
are included in Scripture uh, are kind of rough and are kind of graphic and, and maybe even grotesque, as we have seen here. And the question is, how are they going to apply in our lives? That's what we are after, because they are here for us. So, so let's look. First thing. We're not going to apologize for the existence of these passages, and we're not going to apologize for the actions of Ehud. He was God's chosen man, a judge. Now, we understand why judges were necessary at this time, because Israel had a terrible problem. They would follow God, and things would go good. And things would go so good that they would think, oh, maybe I don't need to follow God and do everything he commands, and did you... Do you, you see how much fun the Moabites are having over there or the Amalekites or the Canaanites or the Ammonites? When they go to worship, man, they are just having a party over there. I think I want to go over there and check that out. So they would begin to synergize their religion with these pagan religions, which was a terrible thing. And we'll look at that more in, in just a minute. But, but the people would fall away from the Lord and then they would come under subjection to a foreign nation that God was using to punish them until they cried out. Remember, 18 years the nation of Israel was under subjection to Eglon and the Moabites. 18 years. And then along comes Ehud. But we find in Scripture that there are plenty of other places where we see people murdered, we see people cheated, in fact, we see people lying on a regular basis in Scripture, and God seems to use them for his purposes. But perhaps the, the, best, the, the best lie in Scripture, I'm not sure that's how we want to phrase it, but was Rahab. Hey, where are the spies? I don't know where the spies are. Well, yes, she knew because she, she was hiding them in her place. But she knew the God that these people worship. For some reason, she had an understanding of that God, and she was going to keep them safe. And the Lord used that lie. Did he ordain it? He used it, certainly, to protect them so that the nation of Israel could come and conquer Jericho. So as we look at this passage, if, if there's any questions about why this passage is in Scripture, I'm going to give you the answer right now so that if... Something happens and you zone out, what, not that you would ever zone out in one of my sermons, uh, but you zone out, you'll know why it's here. God will save his people. Okay, I want you to understand that. God will save his people and he will use whatever means he deems appropriate to carry out his will. That is the message in this passage. And you're thinking, really? Where was that? Well, you'll see it in just a moment. Look at verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, remember it had been 18 years that they had been in subjection to this king and the Moabites. The Lord raises up a savior in the form of Ehud. Ehud is not described, it does not say that they raised up an assassin. He raised up a judge, a man who was godly. It doesn't say they raised up a murderer. It doesn't say he raised up a bad guy. It says, it says they raised up a judge. God called him. God delights to save his people. He delights in it. Remember last week, Jesus said at the, at the, at the Last Supper there, he said, 
I earnestly desire to eat this meal with you, even though he knew what was waiting for him. God loves to save his people. He just does. Because that's why we are here. When we are his people, he is going to order the world in a fashion that we will know the things of Christ. We will know the power of salvation in our lives. So for 400 years, Israel had followed this pattern. Follow the Lord, fall away from the Lord. Bring a judge, follow the Lord, fall away from the Lord. Bring a judge, and it goes on and on and on like that. Uh, they seem to be drawn to these other pagan religions. And so often it's, it's generational. It lasts about the life of the judge and maybe a little bit longer. And then they seem to fall away. Then they seem to say, oh, the Canaanites are really having fun. Let's go worship with them. Charles Simeon, who was one of Spurgeon's favorites, describes this pattern of belief falling away, punishment, restoration. He says, God frequently is pleased to make use of his enemies for the correction of his own people. But when he has accomplished by them the purposes of his grace, he then calls them also into judgment for the acts which they have performed. When the people of God go astray and they no longer follow him, then God raises up one of their enemies. And he lets their natural inclinations and sinful nature overcome. And they invade and they um, oppress his people until his people come to their senses and cry out to the Lord, repent of their sin. And when he does that, then the Lord punishes that nation that used their own sinful inclinations to punish Israel. Let me finish what he says here. In executing his will, they have no respect for him but follow only the wicked inclinations of their own hearts. And therefore he recompenses them, not as obedient servants, but according to the real quality of their actions. Thus he dealt with Sennacherib, who was only gratifying his own ambition, whilst as a sword of Jehovah's hand he was inflicting punishment on Israel. Thus he dealt with Eglon, whom he had raised up to power. Remember, God had raised Eglon to power. And what was the reason he raised him to power? For the purpose of chastising his own people who had fallen away. So Eglon invaded Israel with the help of the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And together for 18 years they ruled and oppressed Israel. Uh, Now there are three pagan nations that Israel typically faced during this period of time. They were the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites, all three were related to Israel by blood. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, Jacob's twin brother. The Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot. Now, this is another passage that we might scratch our head and go, why did God see fit to include that? Well, it's answered for us here today. Remember, The Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot gets away. His wife looks back longingly. She's turned into a pillar of salt. He goes away with his two daughters. And that's usually where we end the story. But the rest of the story uh, gets kind of weird, frankly. And and the daughters sit there and go, how are we going to have children? And they said, we'll get our father drunk. And they have an incestuous relationship with him. Okay, And out of it comes Moab and Ammon. Those two. And they turn into enemies of Israel. 
They turn into enemies of Israel. All three of these nations worship false gods. The Moabites worship Chemish, who was um, called the destroyer, the subduer, or the fish god. The Ammonites worshipped Moloch, and it might be that these were one and the same god in two manifestations because worship of these two gods both involved abhorrent practices, including child sacrifice. And then the, uh, the Amalekites, well, they were kind of a nomadic people, so they just kind of went anywhere, and they had a whole list of gods that they worshipped. So back to Eglon. Eglon established his headquarters, it says, in the uh, city of Palms. I believe is how it says in the, yeah, in verse 13, they possess the city of Palms. That's Jericho. Now, we mentioned Rahab in the city of Jericho. That was the first city that Israel conquered when they came into the promised land. So get the idea that this king has set up his rule in the city, in the first city that Israel had conquered. And and, and in such a fabulous way, the Lord had destroyed the enemies there. So it really must have been a tough pill for Israel to swallow that the king who is oppressing them rules in a city that they had once conquered for God's purposes. Yet God raised up this faithful man from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin geographically covers the area of Jericho. Okay, so Jericho was within that city, and it's not uncommon for God to raise up within an oppressed area the deliverer to do so. Now, the tribe of Benjamin was uh, not, uh, not morally upright. We'll put it that way at this time. And we see that towards the end of Judges 19, 20, 21. They, were not, they didn't have their stuff together, spiritually speaking, but Ehud comes from Benjamin. Um, and... It, and, and the other cool thing, cool thing, we'll say, about Benjaminites is most of the tribe was left-handed. Most of the, how many people are left-handed here? Okay, I think it works out to about 10% of the population, but you know only people who are left-handed are in their right mind, right? Because I mean, you got that, okay? But Benjamin, the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. So there's a lot of irony in this whole story here. Um, and many of the tribe of Benjamin from First Chronicles were ambidextrous. They could use both hands. But when the Bible says that Ehud was left-handed, it doesn't mean that he just favored his left hand. Within the context and the language, it literally means he was bound in the right hand. Bound in the right hand. So there was a problem with Ehud's right hand. He had a disability and either had trouble with his whole right side or at least his right hand. Maybe it was withered, maybe it had been paralyzed in an accident, we don't get that elaboration, it just means that he was bound in his right hand, so he had to use his left hand for, for, for everything else. I can remember third grade, I broke my wrist, and I had to do everything with my left hand, and, and I, I can still do most things with my left hand, I, my, you can't read my writing in my right hand, let alone my left hand, okay? But uh, I eat with my left hand. I do a lot of things with my left hand because that's what I learned. So over the period of time, Ehud became basically left-handed. Now, that would seem to be a handicap. The first thing we look at, well, he's left-handed in a right-handed society. All you are her left-handed who grew up having to write on a right-handed desk, you know, with pens that you, you have to push when you write and everything. You know all about that. 
But what starts out as apparent handicap turns into a real positive for Ehud, turns into an asset. Now, we know that in various cultures, left-handedness is looked upon as um, suspect, let's say. In French, the word gauche means awkward, and it also is the root for left-handed. Um, the word sinister in Latin, that's where we get left-handed. Um, uh, let me think, what else did I come up with? Also, the word for dexterous means uh, something to do with skill, but it comes for the word for right-handed. Okay? So Ehud was sent to represent Israel, to deliver the annual tribute. They had to collect it, they had to pay this. So Ehud took the liberty in this whole process of making himself a sword, a short sword or dagger about 16 inches long. And he strapped the dagger to his right thigh. Now, just to, to illustrate the point, when if you're right-handed, your dagger is over here. So it just would naturally hang here on your left thigh. But he is left-handed, as such a small portion of that population would be at that time, so his dagger is over here. So when you walk in to see the king, they're going to see this guy who can't use his right hand, and they're going to look at his left thigh, and they're going to go, guy's just fine. He's okay. He's not a threat to the king. But yet he had a dagger under his cloak on his right thigh, so that he could get it with his left hand. So if Ehud had been caught with the dagger by that time into the king's presence, he'd have been killed right there. But no one gave him a second thought because he couldn't use his right hand. He couldn't use his right hand. So they probably didn't even search him. They just looked and said, fine, you're on the way in. Now, pick up and look again as we pointed out um, in verse 17. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. How would you like to be known as that? That's your, your legacy in the Bible. You're a very fat man. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you probably didn't want to know, but it's important. It's germane to the context, and it's germane to the story, and it is culturally important. And remember, we're talking about a culture that's very different than ours and is long ago, long ago. Using the restroom in those days was not quite as private as it is today. How about that? If you've ever been to Ephesus, okay, if any of you have ever been to Ephesus, you can walk down the street and see an old public bathroom. And in the public bathrooms, they have these long stone benches that will seat 15 or 20 people. And they all have holes in them. And, and at, in ancient days... Um, using the restroom was much more of a communal activity, okay? Uh, in fact, you would go there and you might spend quite a bit of time there discussing the politics of the day. Uh, in Ephesus, they had a place for a musician. Um, so, you know, there are no, no stalls with doors. I mean, this is just a big room and, and everybody would go in and that was just kind of the norm. And, and you know, so what was the big deal? Um, so, you know, you might get, as I said, 25 people in the room, all going, listening to music, talking about the day, uh, just, just a, was a big social time. So, so there's a very real possibility here that when Ehud gets to see Eglon, Eglon is on his throne. Okay? 
So because it says, look, look what it says. Um, He presented the, and Eglon was a very fat man, 18. And it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute, he sent the people away who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back uh, from the idols that were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message from you. Um, and so he said, keep silent, and all who attended him left. And Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. Cool roof chamber is a euphemism for... On the throne. Okay. So you get that. Uh, so this is what we think is happening here. Uh, and it fits within it fits within the context of the entire uh, story here. Um, so he sends everybody else away. And evidently Eglon didn't expect Ehud to be much of a threat. In fact, he says, I've got a message from God for you. So he says, sure. And he stands up and Ehud pulls the sword from his right thigh, the one he didn't, didn't, nobody looked at, and plunges this dagger, which is about 16 inches long, from your elbow to your knuckles. That's about how long it was, into him. And it doesn't have a hilt, okay? So there's no cross piece on it uh, to prevent it from going too far. And obviously, what do we know about Eglon? Eglon was a very fat man. So it goes into him, and, and the fat comes out, and gathers around it so he can't get it out okay he can't get it out and not only that but it's long enough that it goes through him and other things come out okay now such now i'm going to tell you why this is included in scripture but not in addition to the salvific part i'm going to quote from from a a theologian called Michael Barr, such a grotesque description would have been precisely the kind of detail that in the context, a story of this sort, the people would have delighted in hearing. Okay, understand, this is, this is quite a while ago. And, and in coming generations, they would sit around and talk about the deliverance that God sent in Ehud. And they would laugh at the story. And, and, the, and, it, and the fat sucked up. They couldn't get it out. And, and everything came out. And ah, they would laugh and think it was great because it was such humiliation to the king Eglon. Humiliation, one, that a left-handed guy killed him. Two, that it was in such a grotesque fashion. Three, that it was in the throne room that he died. And they would sit around the campfire and tell these stories about this for generations to come. Now, we typically don't, we took, we're looking at it for its theological significance. They're looking at it for the deliverance that came and how God saved them and the means that the Lord used to, to, to deliver them from this Moabite king, this evil guy. So it's almost as if they're poking fun at the Moabites and how desperately pitiful their king was in his death so Ehud does the deed he kills him and then he locks the door behind him and he leaves and off he goes to deliver the message that the king is dead it's time to overthrow the Moabites and you know the king's attendants come and the door is locked and unless you're a two-year-old you typically don't bang on a bathroom door Okay. Parents know that as soon as you go into the bathroom, some, your child must have something. Okay. They start to bang on the door. 
In, in our house, the, the rule was, is the house on fire? Okay, is somebody dying? No, no then don't, don't open the door. So that's what they do. They stand outside the door, and they're kind of like, what should we do? Well, we don't want to interrupt the king. And, and you know, the, the king has been killed, and he's in the throne room, and because of the, the angle of the blade and the depth of the blade, there are certain odors that are there that are normal. And they're going, well, the king's doing stuff. And after a while, they grow a little antsy, and they op- finally get the key and open the door and find that the king is dead. And by that time, Ehud is gone. The message is out that the Lord has delivered them from the Moabites. Let's go and kill all the Moabites and drive them from the land. And it didn't matter that they didn't have swords, that they didn't have armory. That was still the Israelites and the God who had just delivered them against this heavily armored, valiant nation of the Moabites. And Israel just destroys them, just kills them all. And they are delivered and there is peace in the land once again. So remember, this is a story about salvation, even with all the gory details and and the strange cultural things. But unfortunately, in the book of Judges, it's only a story of salvation for a generation. Because the next generation quickly forgets the power of the Lord. They quickly forget what the Lord has done for them. The stories of Ehud, you know, they pass on and they go, yeah, yeah, grandma told me those stories. And I I never believed them. I mean, who would be stupid enough to be killed like that? And they follow the Canaanite gods or the Ammonite gods, and they drift away from the Lord. Now, it's not uncommon. How long did it take the people who had just come out out of Exodus into the desert, how long did it take for them to start to grumble about their care, and that the Lord just brought us out here to leave us die. It took three days before they start grumbling about water. And then they used to build the golden calf, like, like that calf had saved them. No, it was the power of the Lord. How long did it take for the people of Nineveh to forget their repentance? Next generation. They were gone. They had served foreign gods. A few years after Ehud is dead, the people turned to evil again. No man offers salvation. No leader can give us anything but a temporary peace. God is very clear in the Old Testament. He says what? If, if, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, then I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. God will do the healing. We have to do the humbling. We have to do the praying. We have to do the repenting. A change like that must be an everyday change in our lives because we can't let it go. We must examine our lives on a regular basis and see what has the Lord done? How has he come to me and opened my eyes to the things of Christ? To what great lengths has has God gone to save you? Let's think about it for a minute. What are the circumstances in your life that led you to that moment where your eyes were opened and you understood the things of Christ? What sacrifices did others make so that you could hear the things of Christ? What sacrifices did others make to order your life so that you could see what holiness and godliness was? Look back in your life at times of protection. Now, anybody, 
I don't know about you ladies, but every guy in this room knows that we were stupid when we were teenagers. And we did things that should have ended our life at different times. You know, oh, they were fun and games at that time. But you can look back and go, you know, God really protected me here. How many times has God protected you in your life so that you could pursue him? So that you could hear the things of Christ? How many hard lessons did God have to teach you before your eyes were open to his grace? How many times did you receive an undeserved love from somebody who communicated to you the things of Christ, but you just just didn't hear it? God will go to great lengths to save you. In fact, he has sent his son to save you. And we think, why in the world did he have to do that? That was his purposes. Decided from before he created the world that Christ would give his life. That's the price of salvation for us. That's the length to which God is willing and has gone to save the likes of us. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we've come to this passage and it's hard to read and it's hard to understand. It's hard to think that, that a holy and righteous and just God could use an event like this. But yet that's what you have done. Because you will save your people. Those who belong to you, you will save. That is a given, that is a fact, that is a promise from you. And we look at our own lives, Lord, and and the great lengths that you may have gone to communicate your grace to us, to keep us safe, so that that future day we would believe. To provide for us people in our lives who were gracious and merciful and patient to us, so that we could hear the things of Christ maybe again and again and again and again until that moment when the Spirit would move in our lives and our eyes would be open and your grace and mercy be clear. Heavenly Father, come upon us today. Remind us of those things in our lives that helped shape and form us for that moment of salvation. And Lord, perhaps there are those who who do not believe today who have sat in in church many times or heard the message on uh, many occasions but did not understand what lengths you would go to to demonstrate your love to us and to save us. Perhaps this is the day when their eyes are open, when their heart is changed, where they will believe upon Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Lord, your love for us is greater than anything that we can imagine. Your grace to us and your mercy to us goes far beyond anything in this world such is the extent of your love for us we give you thanks for this in christ's name amen